ahead And just like the guy whose feet are too big for Hello and welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, your media pal. We are at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We wanted to talk this week about uh, this efforts to censor the graphic novel Mouse by Art Spiegelman, uh, which uh, school district in Tennessee is banned for Holocaust Remembrance Week. It's Holocaust Remembrance Week as I'm talking to you, and uh, school district in Tennessee is banning the greatest graphic novel about the Holocaust ever written. But we're not going to talk about that because you know what? That's depressing. And anyone who says that's a good thing is wrong and needs to be dismissed immediately. So instead, we're going to talk about things in popular culture that people actually like and are listening to and are not banning. Paula Schaefer will be here to talk about Yellow Jackets, a hit series on Showtime. And Rob Kuttner will be here to talk about Peacemaker, a hit DC superhero comics uh, comedy show, really, on uh, HBO Max. But first, we're going to do something very original here at the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. We're going to talk to two people at the same time. Sarah Stewart and Stephen Garrett are film critics for us, and they are both attending the virtual Sundance Film Festival, and they're going to join me in this little Zencaster room to talk about what's going on at Sundance. We'll be right back. It won't be long till happiness steps up to greet me. This is a first on Book and Film Globe. We are talking to more than one contributor at the same time, thanks to our new podcasting uh, software on Zencaster. Uh, Sarah Stewart and Stephen Garrett, two Rotten Tomatoes approved film critics. And well, I'm also a Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic, uh, amazingly enough. Uh, so three, three Rotten Tomatoes approved film critics are here today to talk about what's going on at the Sundance Film Festival. Stephen and Sarah, hello. 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 I'm not personally attending the Sundance Film Festival. Not like there's anything to attend in person. It's it's all virtual this year because of uh, Omicron fears. Uh, but you guys are have press passes and you are watching as many movies as you possibly can. <laughs> That's right. On our on our laptops. On your laptops now, and on our smart TVs. Yes, we throw them to our smart TVs. I mean, at least you get a, a sort of a screen now. I personally feel like, you know, film festivals should be in person if at all possible. I know, Stephen, you went you went to con this year. Yeah, felt good. Yeah, right. And and yet Sundance is not happening and that's in Utah. And it feels like it would be easier to get there. But what is the vibe like? Is there even a vibe? Is it a festival at all? Or are you just it's just like getting lots of screeners? <laughs> like, it's getting lots of screeners. So I've, I've done Sundance in person twice. And I've done it once virtually. And I'm going to say I have enjoyed the virtual festival quite a bit. I, I am not a big networker. So while I do enjoy the novelty of going to Park City, I enjoy the occasional party. I don't miss waiting in the lines. And I really like having the sort of quiet to watch the movies on my own and not waste the time schlepping from one theater to another. I, for me, the, the efficiency kind of outweighs the, uh, the the buzz of being there in person. It does take away the uh, sleep deprivation factor and <laughs> fear of missing out factor. There, There is that. Now, do the movies, like, can you watch them whenever you want, or are there still times when they show? 
you can watch them whenever you want. That's the other brilliant thing. Once they've premiered, you have until the end of the festival to watch it. So it really opens up the availability of all of the movies and, and thus you can kind of uh, gauge better what's getting buzzed, what you need to see, and you don't have to kind of kill yourself scheduling, you can kind of wait and see what shakes out and watch whatever you want when you want to see it. Steven, do you have a similar feeling about this? You're maybe a bit more of an extrovert. Well, first of all, I did not have an all access pass. I had a very basic badge, although I tried to game the system by doing Sundance with another friend of mine who actually did have an all access badge. And uh, he and I just kind of went upstate and rented an Airbnb and watched movies together. So that sated my my desire to have like kind of social interactions. Um, but it also allows us to kind of talk about movies, which is the joy of going to film festivals. You see something that is challenging or that you hate and somebody else loves and you get into a conversation about it. And, and that's kind of rewarding and enriching. And, and to Sarah's point, it's very efficient to see a film festival online because you can just line things up. On the other hand, they're very challenging movies. I don't know, Sarah, um, if you saw Blood. Did you see it, Sarah? I didn't. It's a very quiet, nuanced, observational movie. You're just watching people behave in front of each other. There's a lot that is unspoken. There's a lot that just frankly doesn't go on in these moments. It's a very gentle, quiet, fragile movie that I think gets steamrolled in, in an environment like this one where you're watching on a laptop, you're easily distracted. You could quickly switch to mm. another movie. It's, it's, it's too bad. It sounds like a film festival special to me. For sure. But, you know, those are kind of wonderful movies. Now you get something like Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which, you know, Apple bought for $15 million with Dakota Johnson. That plays w- like on a iPhone. You know what I mean? Like that is just, or Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, which is like Emma Thompson. And that got picked up by Fox Searchlight and they're planning to release it in the spring. Um, you know, that plays on whatever platform you're looking at because it's just a different type of movie. But these, you know, like you're saying, like the, there are festival movies that play at festivals for a reason because they want an audience that's excited to see something different and strange and quiet and weird and, you know, needs a lot of tender, loving care to kind of bring it out into the world. And there are other ones that don't. The one thing I'll say is I, I do miss watching a movie with a, with a crowd of film festival moviegoers particularly because they are better than almost any other audience of actually watching a movie and being quiet and appreciating the movie, which is not an experience that I've had very often at the theater. Or there's the film festival audience that like, you know, when, uh, when Jerry played uh, Gus Van Sant's experimental movie with uh, Casey Affleck and Matt Damon, and you could hear the heavy thud of seats slapping in, you know, into place as people got up and left the theater. And it was like startling and also thrilling, perversely thrilling, you know, and you get that at festivals too. You get the immediate reaction from like you're saying, Sarah, like people who were devoted to watching a movie and even they, you know, can't stand something and they walk out and you're just kind of like, wow, this is wild, you know, and you sometimes think this is the only time I'm ever going to see this movie ever. So there are pluses and minuses to this virtual format. You lose that immediacy of having uh, an audience of, of fellow enthusiasts and the conversations afterwards. On the other hand, you do get to watch more movies on your own schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. And, and uh, very quickly, the original intent of this quote-unquote hybrid festival, which they were going to have up until a week before they decided, no, we're going to scrap it because of Omicron, is that conceivably... I would be at the festival, I'd have P&I screenings, et cetera. And then it had 
a 24-hour allotment of movies uh, that you could watch online for 24 hours in addition to the P&I screenings that were in person. So it was, a, it was a true hybrid of like you could watch stuff online as well as in person or watch it again online. So I, I think there's a way they can coexist, and I think it's really good. I, I've been going to Sundance since the year 2000, and the, the, the festival is thrilling and also completely frustrating and is absolutely not meant to be in a small ski resort. So from that point of view, it's great because it's only gotten super frustrating. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did not miss it. Like Sarah, like you're saying, like I didn't miss it last year. I didn't really miss it this year. I think it bears saying too that uh, having a virtual festival or a hybrid festival really opens up the accessibility to people who might have problems being in there in person. I mean, as somebody who, you know, had was dealing with cancer for a year in 2018, 2019, you know, I, I found it very difficult to travel, obviously, but it was, you know, perfectly easy for me to watch movies at home. And, and I think there are a lot of people who are dealing with various things, especially now. In addition to health, there's also the question of affordability. Mm -hmm. It's expensive to travel to Utah and stay in a condo. Park City especially, quite expensive. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm down for uh, online accessibility. I just, you know, personally like going to the movies sometimes. So that's that's my only issue. But regardless, we mentioned some of the uh, movies that, that were a little bit buzzy. Uh, Stephen, you mentioned uh, Leo Grande. What's, what's it called again? Uh, good luck to you, Grand. It's an Grande. awful title. Not a great title, but that's I saw that getting some buzz in the Dakota Johnson movies. What are some of the other big name premieres that, that are uh, showing up? Uh, I think Phoenix Rising was buzzy when they announced it. It's actually the first half of a docuseries, as it turns out. Uh, about Evan Rachel Wood, the actress who uh, recently brought allegations about Marilyn Manson. And it, it really goes into a lot of detail about the abuse she suffered at his hands. And it, it is really impressive. I found it very upsetting, uh, very disturbing, but I think it, it is very successful in, in what it's trying to do. And, and I think that she really emerges as a tremendous voice for domestic violence survivors. Does it have a lot of footage of her and him together? Yes, it does. It, well, it has a, a lot of photographic evidence that she has and, and, you know, diaries and letters and that sort of thing. I think that the most of the video footage that's included is this, uh, this song of his called Heart Shaped Glasses, which is a reference to Lolita, in which she starred with him. And uh, at the time, it, it was said that they were having simulated sex on camera, but she now alleges that it was actual sex and that they had been plying her with absence all night and that she did not consent to that. It sounds uh, cheery and buzzy and, and interesting. Now, it reminds me a little bit <laughs> of the uh, the Michael Jackson documentary that de mm -hmm. de debuted at Sundance. Either, was it last year or the year before? I, I know we, we covered that. Uh, and, you know, then it aired on HBO. I'm guessing this is going to have a similar uh, airing. It seems like it will. I don't, do you know, Stephen, if it's uh, if it's slated to air somewhere already? That I don't know, um, but uh, it also reminds me of another title from this Sundance, which is uh, we need to talk about Cosby, which is W. Kamau Bell's exploration of Cosby's serial rapist activities over the course of 40 plus years. And he really maps it out and he takes four hours to tell the story. So in that way, it's very much like leaving Neverland. And this starts on Showtime, I think on Sunday. So it's time very much to kind of share with the world, I guess. <laughs> but- um, Stephen, were you able to watch all four hours? I sat down and watched all four hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're interested, of course, in, in Cosby and all that kind of stuff, it's it's a Fast and Furious sort of watch. And and it's, it's really interesting uh, hearing people grapple with 
the legacy and you know the the doors that he busted down um, in his fame and and the abuse of his fame. Um, I, I think it's just kind of fascinating. And again, it sounds like it kind of dovetails nicely in terms of this abuse of fame and abuse of power and how this sort of accountability has escaped these men for for way too long. And I think it also really gets to this ongoing conversation that we're having, going back and looking at an awful lot of things, you know, from the 70s, 80s, 90s that we loved and kind of reckoning with, uh, you know, what can we hold on to? What are the good things that came out of it? And how can we kind of look it squarely in the eye and acknowledge the terrible things that happened? I went to see Bill Cosby do stand up uh, in 1986 in Phoenix. <laughs> I gave him $16. <laughs> I feel really bad. I watched the Cosby show. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. It's like, you know, are we, this is why we can't have nice things. Right. Or maybe the nice things turn out to be horrible, but uh. you know, it's, it's, you got to hold those two conflicting thoughts in your head at the same time. And they do at the end. Uh, Kamal Bell asks, how do you describe Cosby? Like wh- what is Cosby to you? And somebody said, Cosby is a really great comic. He's a really great entertainer and he's a really great rapist. And I, I kind of laughed at that, and I also kind of got stuck in my throat, that laughter. And I was like, yeah, he, he was, and he is. And those jokes are funny. And he also horribly abused the, the image that he created of America's dad, you know? And then there are all these things, you know, that come out, like, kind of maps out where he's kind of in plain sight confessing to what he's doing, not confessing to copping to it, you know? He'll brag about the aphrodisiacs, the barbecue sauce that he gave people on the Cosby show that got them all, like, horny, and somebody pointed out too, you know, Kamal asks Dr. Huxtable, like, what, what kind of doctor was he? And, and the person says, like, well, he was, a, he was a pediatrician, right? And he's like, no, he was an OBGYN. And he, he operated out of his basement. <laughs> like, he would take women down to his basement and check them out on the show. And everybody's like, yeah, okay. Jesus, you know. I haven't gotten that That was the most popular, show, most popular show on TV. Most popular show on TV. It was incredible. But he really... The way that he used that popularity to win people over and he would he would invite people into, you know, people he wanted to abuse. And it very much was like his kink was to take advantage of unconscious women. You know, like that was absolutely his kink. Had to be unconscious. As much as I would like to spend the rest of our time talking about Bill, <laughs> Sorry. Bill, Bill Cosby's <laughs> Bill Cosby rabbit hole. Yeah, I I feel like we should mention if there are any feature films at Sundance of uh, that are of interest to the general listener. That is fair. Oh, yeah. That is fair. Yes. Um, can we talk about Emergency? Have you seen that one, Stephen? I did not. I missed oh, that. Oh, Emergency is great. It's really interesting. It's um, basically, in some ways, is is your sort of typical um, college romp where uh, these guys are planning for this big night of going to seven parties in one night or something. And uh, and the two protagonists, the two best friends are black and they are preparing to go out and they find a drunk white girl nearly passed out and vomiting on the floor of their house. And they are thrown into the situation where they don't know what to do with her. They suspect that things will go badly for them if they do call the cops. And so they take the drunk girl with them on this night and it, it turns the college romp on its ear because you can see if these two guys were white, it would be kind of a hangover just kind of a body college comedy. But because they're black and because they're facing potentially getting shot by the cops, it vacillates between funny and truly upsetting and terrifying. That sounds good. It is. It Legitimately is. sounds entertaining and interesting. Uh, Stephen, do you have a pick? Well, I mean, uh, just riffing off of that, uh, there were some really interesting uh, uh, 
fiction films that dealt with uh, race um, and kind of went into a sort of Jordan Peele sort of territory. Uh, one was called Alice, where a woman, I think it's Kiki Palmer, is a slave on a plantation and escapes a plantation and stumbles onto a highway where a truck driver pick, played by a common picks her up. And she realizes that it's 1973 and there are these people in Georgia who are keeping plantations alive and keeping slaves ignorant of what's happening in the outside world. Which is the thing that happened, right? And apparently it's based on a, a true story. And so it does not succeed. It has a lot of pacing problems, but the, the concepts are very strong. The filmmaking isn't that great, but it's basically a mashup of like 12 Years a Slave and a black exploitation movie like Coffee or Truck Turner. And it's a revenge as well. She comes back and she kind of burns it all down with a big afro and a leather outfit that she's wearing and everything like that. She's very Pam Greer by the end of the movie. And then also this movie Master, which really addresses racism in academia and these kind of ivory towers being so ivory that there is no ebony, there is no room, so to speak. And that, in fact, their race is co-opted uh, by professors who want to, you know, get tenure and use critical race theory in a way that's very manipulative. So, um, and that uses a lot of horror tropes. So again, it's a very Jordan Peele sort of thing because at this college, there's also a legend of the Salem witch type thing that chooses a freshman to terrorize and then drives her to kill herself. Man, I, I love film festivals. Yeah, it's fun <laughs> stuff. That movie definitely does have elements that feel very uh, Jordan Peele-esque, although I didn't feel it completely succeeded. I thought there were some some narrative threads that were really left hanging at the end and and uh, and horror tropes that could have been fleshed out a little bit more. Yeah, no, I, I do agree. I don't think it succeeds completely, uh, but it succeeds, uh, I think, a lot more than uh, than Alice. And it's just a lot more fun. I think the filmmaking is more assured, although the storytelling is a little wobbly. Sarah, you have one before we, we cut off. You you had a, a point you wanted to make about how you, know, you read something about talking about how gloomy the vibe was with Sundance this year because there wasn't an in-person festival and the movies seemed pretty like we're in some sort of uh, COVID era depression. But you didn't you're not getting that vibe off of it. No, I've really, I think this is maybe the most interesting crop of movies I've seen at Sundance. And granted, I haven't been going as long as Stephen has, but I think that there is something to having the festival be a little quieter that just allows for thinking about a wider group of films than the ones that, you know, when you're there, there tends to be this momentum of a handful of movies that are getting a ton of traction. Everybody is talking about the tend to take center stage. And for me, I've felt like this has really been a wide open field to kind of discover the things that interest you. And for me, the things that have been really interesting are documentaries about, as with the Cosby um, and, and the Evan Rachel Wood kind of looking back at earlier eras and uh, what we drastically misread at the time or, or you know, things that are a lot more complicated than we thought they were. And I would like to shout out one more documentary in, in that capacity, which was called Brainwashed, which is about how films are structurally shot to enforce a misogynist cis male view of what's going on on the screen. And it's adapted from, uh, Nina Menkes is the director, and it's, it's very much adapted from a seminar that she gave at, uh, I want to say USC, but it could be, it could be something else. Um, so it, it is academic in that sort of way that uh, the Al Gore documentary was. But it's such a fantastic crash course in how to view movies with, with really keeping an eye on the entrenched patriarchal structure that has dominated Hollywood for forever. 
and I, I really highly recommend that. Well, one. and it's fun. It's fun to see a movie like Brainwashed at Sundance, especially this year, because there's so many more. It's it's so much become more and more the norm to have kind of parody in terms of gender, gender parody with uh, directors. So you're seeing a lot more films that are written and directed by women. And it does challenge sometimes the language that Sarah's talking about, the filmic language, about how you shoot a woman, how you shoot a man, um, is so ingrained that it's hard to shake off. And, you know, you see a movie like Lena Dunham's Sharp Stick, which I didn't think was very good at all, but it does try to address female sexuality in a, in a fairly sort of fairy tale mythic way. And the other one I was going to mention is a movie called Fresh, which is a horror movie <laughs> with Sebastian Stan as a cannibal, a very suave cannibal, and he only sells female meat. So he'll seduce these women, take them back, put them in his dungeon, and then keep them alive because the meat is more delicious and tender the longer that he can keep them alive. It's a wonderfully ham-fisted metaphor, and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It's got a very American Psycho vibe. It is super American Psycho. It's very, it drove me crazy because it was very derivative of like American Psycho and some other things. And I didn't think the, the writing was really that strong, but the premise, no. oh my God, it's hilarious and so it's so fun. I mean, and that's I and that actually <laughs> that's where I miss being in person at a theater like at midnight at the Egyptian or something. Yes, agreed. And just uh, to round out the the female uh, gaze and the the sexuality. Uh, good luck to you, Leo Grand. Yes, not a great title, but uh, Emma Thompson. What a fantastic performance! Is it's it's really wonderful and not quite what you'd expect and uh, not at all condescending in the way that sometimes I think films about older women and their sexuality can be. Well, and also, did you see a love song? I did. Yes, yes. We should talk about that. That that was a beautiful film too, uh, Neil. You'd probably hate it because it's like the actors. It was West Study and Dale Dickey and Dale Dickey both in their sixties. They're both widowed. And it's so delicate and lovely in the movies, like a wisp of a length. It's like a short story. It's like 80 minutes or something like that. And it's lovely. Like so little happens. I mean, it's just, it's a quiet movie. It, it sort of feels like you're camping. I mean, you really get the, the texture and the sounds and the feel of where they are. And the emotion between them is, seems very unforced and real and not at all melodramatic. And it is, it's like a wonderful little short story. Well, that's not, that sounds great, and I can't wait to see it. So, Steve, Stephen, and Sarah, <laughs> no, let's keep talking, man. Come on, we got to we got, we got to talk about we got I got to talk about TV with some people. Oh, fine. I have eight more documentaries to tell you about, and they're all sad. Yeah, I've seen twenty-seven movies, man. Come on, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> well, no, thank you guys so much for uh, covering the festival for us and for. Uh, for braving the virtual lines. And I appreciate you uh, helping me break down the the uh, patriarchy of the film industry, which has been <laughs> my, my main goal. Thank you so much. We will talk to you both soon. All right. Bye. Good talk. You never really know where a hit show is going to come from, honestly. And uh, the show Yellow Jackets has appeared on Showtime and has become very buzzworthy, one of the most buzzworthy shows of the season. And suddenly everyone in my feed was watching and talking about Yellow Jackets. So I was like, well, we, we need to run an article about this. 
And uh, Paula Schaefer wrote a piece about Yellow Jackets for us and is here to talk to us about it today. Hello, Paula. Hello. Yes, I did, in fact, watch Yellow Jackets. And it is really hard not to do all the buzz puns when it has a title like that. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I believe that Yellow Jackets is the name of the girls' soccer team, right? Yeah, it's like the sport team name. Yellow Jackets is, is, a, is kind of an interesting hybrid show because, as you point out in the review, it's a mystery box show like Lost, but it's also got this thing going on where you've got teenagers, but then the adult versions of the teenagers, and it's got some horror elements, so it kind of has a little bit of you know, Stephen King's it in the DNA as well because of that structure. And so it's this, it's this uh, hybrid show, and uh, it's a genre show, and it's uh, really caught on. Yeah, it really has. I, you know, I think it works like the teen audience likes it because it has, you know, teenagers going through the teen angst stuff and exploring their sexuality and, you know, women like it because it has that, oh, I've, I'm now of a certain age and I'm looking back through this lens at my childhood and my earlier years and men like it because it's full of attractive women. But then there's, you know, the element that that makes everybody interested, which is it's hooky and suspenseful. And it has that dash of gore and that bit of fear and some creepiness. The the general premise, and obviously I don't want to give away any big spoilers, is that uh, these uh, young women are they're a member of a sports team. They're soccer players, right? Correct. They're going to soccer nationals. I was like, when are soccer nationals? And I don't think that's actually something that exists. Somewhere they have to fly to as opposed to take a bus. <laughs> and so this one, but are they flying? They're flying commercial, right? They're flying on a private jet. One of the oh, one oh, of the really? team members is wealthy and her father has given them his jet. Uh, how convenient. So they're flying on a private jet and they crash land somewhere. Yes. And it's it's not on an island as is the usual pla crashed plane. It is in some wilderness, maybe in Canada, some northern wilderness. Oh, so they're flying. They're flying to soccer nationals in the United States, but crash land in Canada. Yeah. Or or vaguely like north northern somewhere like where there are lots of trees and it gets very cold. Maine. The only place <laughs> I can think of like that would be Maine. Well, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe they're in North Dakota. I, I, I think the official stance is they're in Canada, you know, because planes fly uh -huh. in that like half circle thing to make the route shorter. So they crash land someplace where no one can find them. Exactly. And apparently where, exactly. Their, where their cell phones don't work. Well, it's the 90s, so they don't have them. Oh, yeah. The crash is in 1996. Oh, there you go. So it's the 90s. They're trapped in the wilderness and they have to resort to trapped in the wilderness uh, things in order to survive. So there's a little Lord of the Flies thing going on, too, as well. Yeah, for sure. Like the show opens with, oh, here comes cannibalism. And they don't hide that. So that the whole time you're like, okay, they're going to get from th these normal teens with their stuff going on to crash survivors to now they're eating somebody. And so the mystery is, well, how are they going to get there? What is the path that leads them there? What is going to happen? And so and who do they eat? we don't know. And so that's also the mystery. Who did they just eat? Um, are they traveling with seasoning? <laughs> do they have salt? <laughs> it's important that your food is seasoned. I mean, if you're watching Gordon Ramsay's Next Level Chef, you'll know. Yeah, he would He would totally throw a person in the garbage who didn't have enough seasoning. We're going to have a, a lovely, lovely leg of, uh, of teen today. But cannibal jokes aside, Yellow Jackets is, uh, yeah, they renewed it for a second season. And I guess my, my thing about these mystery box shows is they always seem good on the surface. You know, like I enjoyed the first season of Lost as well. 
But then at some point you get this sense that the showrunners or writers don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. Especially these network mystery box shows when they have when they're dealing with 13 to 22 episodes per season. We realize at some point that they don't actually know where this is going, but you don't get that sense with Yellow Jackets. So Yellow Jackets, I believe they originally pitched it as here. We have this five season story we want to tell. So I feel confident if they're like, we have 50 episodes worth of ideas at the outset. Here's what we're thinking. Maybe they really do. Like you, I have like that skepticism of this kind of show. It's like the spinning top and inception. Like, can they keep that magic up? Can they keep that going and spinning? Or is it just going to fall down and it's done? And you're like, oh, man, and all the joy is gone. For most shows, 50 episodes is too many episodes, (laughs) especially... When you're dealing with mystery, when it's a compact contained mystery. Yeah. If you have a more sprawling universe with more to add, it can work. But this is a pretty contained situation. So, you know, I, I liked it. What, what really made it work for me is less the story and like, it's like, I don't know, there are creepy symbols and creepy figures and and all of that. That's great. But really what pulled this show along were the performances because the actresses are all Right. You have a lot. You have some some, you know, sort of I wouldn't call, you know, star power. I guess you call it star power. I mean, Christina Ricci, Juliette Lewis. I mean, my God, like us 90s indie kids, you know, must love this cast. And then Melanie Linsky as well, who is who is a terrific actor. Yeah, absolutely. And Tawny Cypress, I wasn't really familiar with her before, but she holds her own against these, you know, more known names. And not only are the adult women really in their performances and owning it, but the younger women maintain the same level. So it really works. They manage somehow to get it very, it's believable this person turned into that person. That, that's some great casting. All right. Well, Yellow Jackets is on Showtime now. Second season will appear uh, eventually. And then apparently there will be a third, fourth and fifth season. And there will definitely be a lot of merch at Hot Topic. I guarantee it. Yellow Jackets merch. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Like I, I've been watching The uh, the Expanse lately on um, finally catching up to it. And I've been I've been Googling. Um, searching on Amazon for like expanse merchandise. And I, I do, I, you know, I, I've, I've grown um, fond of like collecting t-shirts and, and jackets from my favorite TV shows. I like that we live in a world where you can do that now. All right, great. <laughs> Paula, thank you so much. We will talk to you soon. See you later. Book and Film Globe contributor Rob Kuttner has returned to our pages and returned to our airwaves. He wrote a piece about the new HBO Max slash DC comic show Peacemaker, which debuted a few weeks ago, starring John Cena. Hello, Rob. How are you? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. So, yeah. So Peacemaker, I saw the Suicide Squad in theaters because I am suicidal in that I (laughs) go to the movie theaters uh it's 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 my uh it's my dance with death that i like to undergo every couple of weeks and uh you know i i was under the impression that that character died you didn't you didn't stay through the credits which is what marvel has taught us to do there was a post-credit sequence where that weasel guy woke up on the beach and ran off into the woods there's there's another one oh you have to there's two at least nowadays and i think in the very last one is like 
I forget who it is, but they discover him in the rubble and there's like a pulse or something like that. They, they have that whole biochip in everybody so they can sort of tell everybody's deal. So like they could tell he's still alive. Right. So at the beginning of Peacemaker, I haven't watched much of the show, but I did watch the first 15 minutes or so. He's in the hospital, fully recovered from being stabbed through the heart or whatever, or shot in the face or whatever the hell happened to him. And uh, then he, then the Peacemaker is off on his adventure. Now, I should mention, this is, an ant, this is the definition of an antihero. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because he sort of is and he isn't like I think they're kind of catching him in between them. Like he's this guy who's a self-appointed like writer of wrong. But he's like his funny mantra is I'm going to create peace no matter how many people I have to kill to do it. So he's a little bit like the pun. He's a little bit like the Punisher in that way, I guess. But like more lighthearted, sort of more lighthearted. He's the Punisher with a costume that's sort of like Captain America's. So I'm not super familiar with this character from the comics. Is he meant to be sort of an ironic commentary on superheroes like Deadpool? I'm actually not either. I, I have to say my first exposure to him was in the Suicide Squad and in this show. So I don't know what the sort of back. I mean, they sort of establish a background for him that he's raised by this dad, this hard ass racist asshole dad played by um, Robert Patrick. And he was sort of made to be this kind of like right wingish vigilante enforcer guy. And clearly he's sort of like grown apart from that. And he sort of has this sort of confused mentality about helping people in a certain way. But he's also like ultra violent. And it's not even clear 100% like what landed him in prison in the first place. Like he obviously killed some people and then he got caught. But he's not like this sort of he's not clearly a hardcore villain or like a unconventional hero either. He feels like it feels like he's sort of evolving during the series as we're seeing him. Right. And, and DC is doing this thing where they have uh, this whole uh, team of likable bad guys, the Suicide Squad, who mm-hmm. are villains, but are now also heroes. You know, Harley Quinn and the, the Idris Elba character, uh, the, the Shark Man. Which I, I really dig because it's like I feel like it's DC has found like the human funny part of their their relentless darkness until now. They finally found a way in, which is through their villains, I think. Yeah, the Suicide Squad kind of cemented that. And this show, as you point out in the review, is just suffused with deep irony and lots of banter. James Gunn, who was the guy who gave us Guardians of the Galaxy, is the showrunner and the chief writer. So it's it's just full of his, you know, signature, you know, pop culture references and just endless witty banter. Just quibbling about like the tiniest shit. Like it is like in that sort of Tarantino mold, I think, of like the bad guys just while they're waiting waiting for something to happen, they get into an argument over, you know, tits and tats and stuff. And it is very funny. It's like, it's just, he writes it so crisply and it's not just sort of about nothing. It's usually uh, has like a sort of funny observational comedy quality to it. And the, um, the team, he is T as a team, uh, the Peacemaker does it. And they're, they're also characters from the Suicide Squad. They work for like a kind of a secret government agency and they're like, millennial maybe young gen x like computer hackers almost yeah they're like this like bad news bears like op squad which i think is kind of interesting and also a little bit a little bit hinky as i say in the review because it's kind of like it's played for comedy up to a point and then you're like is this even like possible but i you know i don't know they also might be setting up that they are kind of all patsy as i think you know i haven't seen episode five and they're kind of kind of leading in that direction that there's something bigger going on than what we think we see but they are these yeah these goofy like i said kind of a sitcom workplace with all the little quirks and foibles and office politics you know, it's tough, like you said, in the DC universe, because not, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, everything is so intimately connected and it mm-hmm. all it's like this giant puzzle and it all fits together somehow. Whereas with DC, there's like these you know, there's multiple realities and there's, you know, there's multiple tones and there's different actors playing characters. And 
you know, I'm, I'm wondering, like, are they are, are they going to catch up? Is this is this show the glue? It just seems kind of odd. It's an interesting place to build a universe out of, too. It's a very weird place, although maybe it will lead to a very cool and kind of creative thing. But I think they just don't have like a Kevin Feige who has that kind of long-term vision to plug it all together. But they're trying to clearly learn from that, which is probably going to be, you know, for the good. And we'll, I think they've had some trouble getting audiences to keep coming back to see Batman and the, the, the Batman and then one of several Batman and, you know, each iteration. But they have some passion also, like the whole backlash that led to the, the Zack Snyder cut being released. I think there's clearly there's some kind of passion in their fan base, but they haven't quite crystallized it the way that Marvel has. And I think maybe they're trying to just really harden that. I mean, it doesn't really matter in a way. Like if you look at comic books, you know, co- if you look at DC comics, there's always there's always 18 different tones and True. different versions of characters. I mean, in, in some ways, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, is almost an aberration. Uh, all right. So Peacemaker we can't really discuss the show without discussing the opening credit sequence, which is, <laughs> to my mind, the greatest, if not one of the greatest opening credit sequences of all time. It's, it's fantastic. It, it, it's just like basically like a reconstructed, you know, 80s music video, um, which is totally like letting you know what you're in for with the show. And sort of, except that the, the song, it does the song, um, do, do you want to taste it uh, is by a, uh, a Scandinavian uh, glam rock band called Wigwam. And it was actually recorded in 2010. Oh, but really? It sounds, yes. Yes. But that's hilarious. Yeah. But it sounds like something that would have that, that was recorded by Poison in 1980. Yeah, it has that whole it plays the ethos uh, exactly of that for sure. And the cast, the entire cast of the show does this ridiculous robot dance <laughs> to the song and they're, they're on this like very bare bones kind of um, black limbo space set, like the let's get physical set or something like that. Yes, or, yes, exactly. So I don't and know. Then, um, and, and Robert Patrick's the older dude who can't keep up with the beat. <laughs> just, yeah. Just, just waggling his, his crotch at the camera. And, <laughs> and like I said, I've watched about 15 minutes of the show, but I've watched that opening credit sequence at least a dozen times. My my friend my friend John DeVore, who's a critic, uh, says it's like this shot of uh, this this straight shot of serotonin directly into your cortex. Like just to, you could just watch that and just like cheer yourself up. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. I was watching it on YouTube, and then I you know I have HBO Max on on the TV, and I, I fired up the app, and I made my wife watch it with me, and then I made my son watch it with me, and they were both amused by it. And then Regina was like, "Are you watching that opening credit sequence to Peacemaker again?" <laughs> I'm like, I can't stop. I can't. I, and now I've been watching the original Wigwam mu- music video as well, which is which is twice as long. The song is that that's just half the song, Rob. Amazing. Amazing. I have to ask. I have to ask. Do you do you want to taste it? <laughs> um, do you really? Want to taste it? Do I really? You see, it's about your sincerity. Like you could be ironically tasting. You could be hate tasting it, which is a common thing. Yeah. No, I want to taste it. And uh, I actually, and then and then Regina watched the first fifteen minutes of the show, and she's like, "Hey, you know, this is pretty good." Yeah, I mean, it really is like it's really a smart pivot, I think, for the the tone of DC. I think, and maybe it's, I think it maybe it's just that HBO Kids, it's HBO Max. They they it is like they really want to let you uh, just change up your entire sort of set of feelings around superheroes, and they really want you to taste it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob Cutner, thank you so much for talking to me, and thanks for coming back and writing about Peacemaker and we will talk at you soon. See ya.
right. Thanks, Rob, for talking to me about Peacemaker. And thanks to Paula Schaefer for talking to me about Yellow Jackets. And thank you to Sarah Stewart and Stephen Garrett for taking time out from their busy schedule of sitting at home watching movies from the Sundance Film Festival on their laptops or on their on their wall-mounted TVs that they're streaming from their laptops. It's a brave new world in which we live. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com, a website that you definitely want to taste every day. It's a nourishing diet of media criticism and pop culture reviews and all kinds of other great stuff. Thank you so much for reading the site. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you soon. Production.